Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Monthly radio show where the hype ends and the help begins. Right here on KCAA, now broadcasting on 1050 AM. 102.3 FM and 106.5 FM, the stations that leave no listener behind. KCAA Loma Linda. Listen online at www.kcaaradio.com. If you don't know what it's all about, Dr. Jolly will tell you on What's It All About, Wednesday afternoons at 3 on KCAA 1050 AM. This is Marge Doyle, RN, and I approve this message. The 8th District has some of the most visited public lands in the country, which are directly tied to our economy and thousands of jobs. When elected, I will ensure that we preserve our natural resources. I am extremely lucky to live in the Mojave Desert. I know Marge. She will fight to protect our public lands from the desert all the way up the Eastern Sierra. These natural treasures give us jobs and grow our local economies. Please vote with me for Marge Doyle on Tuesday, June 5th. These are critical times. Paid for by Marge Doyle for Congress 2018. KCAA Loma Linda. KCAA Radio now joins the Sunday morning worship services of the Pruitt Baptist Church in Van, Texas with Brother Mike Calhoun. If you will, turn over in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Scriptures tell us that on that, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go to the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepared for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Father, thank you for this passage, dear Lord, and the others that we'll read in just a moment. And Father, we pray that you will, that your Holy Spirit will settle down in this place, in our hearts, dear Lord. Rest upon our minds and our eyes, dear Lord. And Father, whatever the cares and the distractions of this past week, have been, dear Lord. We pray for this hour, for this moment, dear Lord, that you will help us to pull away from those. And Father, to be able to focus on your word and to focus on what it is that you uh, might be saying to each and every one of us. I pray you speak to me this morning, dear Lord, through your word. It is such a powerful and living thing. And Father, as we look at these teachings this morning about the Passover and about the Last Supper, dear Lord, the Lord's Supper, dear Lord, we just ask you to bless us. And that's all we can do is ask you to bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. The passage that we're looking at this morning is an incredible passage of Scripture. There's There's several different things. There's several different kinds of teaching that are going on here in this passage. There's a lot here. But I want to introduce the rest of the the text that we're going to be reading in just a moment by discussing this initial, this introductory passage to the Passover. Uh, A lot of pastors, a lot of teachers will miss this right here. There's some very interesting things that are happening right here. He says in this passage right here that it was the first day Jesus is on his march. It's beginning to intensify and he's on his way to the cross. 
Verse 12 tells us it was the day of unleavened bread. That's when they were preparing the bread for the Passover, and the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. His disciples said, where do you want us to go and prepare? It was just automatic. They, this was a Jewish culture. It was a Jewish rabbi. It was his disciples. They are beginning to follow him. And he begins to, to, to tell them, give them some instructions, and you almost miss it. You see, because of the, the first part of the Gospel of Mark, it has been so miraculous, it has been so powerful, you come to this, this um, account of where Jesus gives them these special instructions, it's almost easy to miss here. But he gives them a supernatural introduction. It is the, we would call it a method of, of the miraculous. I mean, we've almost, by chapter 14, have gotten used to the fact in this story, at least in this narrative, that this Savior is miraculous. I mean, he, he is not, he's really not of this world, and yet he is. And he begins to give them these special instructions. And look what we're going to get out of this right here. He sent two of his disciples. He said to them, go to the city, and a man will meet you there carrying a pitcher of water, and follow him. Now, two things here. Most of you who studied this passage, you know, first of all, men didn't carry water at that particular time. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of John chapter 8, why did the woman go to the well? She was going to the well because that's what women did at that time. The other ladies probably came to the well at early in the morning, but remember the, the woman who of questionable character, she comes in the noontime, and that's where Jesus has this wonderful encounter with her. Well, it's because that was women's work at that particular time. So this is an oddity in and of itself. You go to the city, and you will find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Uh, I hadn't read this uh, except just here this past year. I had found out that usually when they went to the water, they didn't always carry pitchers or, or vases or earthenware of water. But it, a lot of times it would have been a, a, a sack of water, like a skin sack filled with like wine skins like that. It should have been something like that. But it was a man, he's carrying a pitcher of water, and he just says, follow him. And wherever he enters into the city, say to the owner of that house. Now he already, so there's the owner of the house that he knows. Teacher, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you. He knows what he's going to do. He knows where he's going, who he's going to find, where they're going. And he himself will show you. This person that you haven't met yet, and whose name I'm not giving you, He's going to find a large upper room furnished and ready. It's going to be ready. So I'm already working on that side of this issue. He's going to be preparing for us there. Verse 16 says the disciples went out, couldn't find him. Doesn't say that, does it? They had trouble finding him. Does it, no, it just says the disciples went out, came to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So before we get to that section where they are going to be actually eating the Passover together, one of the, very, the introductory point that we have here is that our God works as, as his method is in the miraculous. We serve a Savior who, who, who works in the miraculous. And this is so important for us in our walk with the Lord, in our Christianity, in our discipleship. It's good that we understand as Christians that we don't know everything. That we don't know. I heard a youth pastor say one time, he said, all I know, pastor, is I'm not God and he is. And we're going to have to depend on him. He said it all the time. I thought it was a great statement. Because while I was worried about maybe how something was going to work out or the details or maybe somebody who was upset or not upset, I was worried about a lot. He would just remind, hey, we're not God. We don't know the answer to that. In this instance, Jesus shows special knowledge, foreknowledge of the city, of the man, of somebody carrying an oddity. He's carrying a water pitcher. It's a man carrying it. He knows the home, the place. He knows everything. He knows everything. He knows the how, the who, the what, and, and why this is all transpiring. This is so Jesus-like. This is so Jesus-like. And let's bring it all the way back up to the 21st century. Remember that God is always using the method of the miraculous around us. Listen to me now. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. This next week, how many more weeks of school left? Four weeks, four weeks of school. Every teacher in the room said four weeks. Come even now, oh Lord, help us. <laughs> My kids, are, they want, they're ready to get out too, aren't they? But think about it, four weeks left of school, and I want to encourage you teachers, God is working. He is working where you work. I see Jess over here, and I know she works at a hospital. I see different people who work in different, in different on, on, with road crews or an oil company. Listen, God is in the miraculous business. That's what he's doing. He's God, and, he, and you're a Christian. That even gives you even more. He's even more working in your sphere of influence. God is always using the method of the miraculous. Point number two about that is this. We should look for the miraculous. He instructed his disciples to, in this instance, 
This is what you're going to find. You're going to go here. You're going to do this. You're going to find this. You go and do this. And they went and they found it just as he said. One of the problems we're having in the church, and I'm not, this is a little bit of a pet peeve. I promise I'm not going to stay here very long. We stopped as a church a lot of times. The, the Christian church has stopped looking for the miraculous. We've stopped looking. What can we do? How much, I mean, how, what do our finances look like? How many people do we have? And, you know, when we go back and we read in the Old and the New Testament, they should have quit a thousand times. God's people shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be here. They, Jesus shouldn't have won. He shouldn't have gotten. But he did because he's God, and he knew how it was all going to turn out anyway. And that's encouragement for you and I in whatever situation you're going through right now in your life that you ought to be looking for the miraculous in your marriage and in your home and in your city and in your church. What can God do? I promise you I can't do it. I'm telling you categorically right now this morning, Mike Calhoun, I can't get it done. I'm, I can't, I can't, I can't. And if we ever get to a place where you think I can't, I'm out, I'm, go, I'm going. I can't do it. I can't do it. I've worked as a pastor before thinking that it's all, this is on my shoulders. I've got to get this. I can't do it. I, my, I'm looking for God to do something miraculous. And when me and my grandkids and my great-grandkids look back and at this season that I'm here at Pruitt Baptist Church, we're going to say, God was faithful. He did that. God is always using the miraculous. But God help us that we continue to look for the miraculous. Now, this is going to, you're going to say I'm crazy right here, but this third point is on this, what we just read is this. We ought not become dependent upon the miraculous. You can't, just, you can't be the kind of Christian who thinks, well, I'm going to witness this week if I'm in Tyler, Texas, and, I'm happy, and there's a car accident, and somebody's catapulted out of the car and, lands in, and goes through my windshield and lands in my seat. Well, then maybe I'll tell them about Jesus. Guess what? That's probably never going to happen. And a lot of us operate like that. Okay, if you, I'll tell you what, I know I need to have this hard decision, a hard discussion with one of my children about spiritual things or about something, about the Lord, about their salvation, or my husband or my wife. But if this, you can't depend on the miraculous. We got to do what we're supposed to do. As much as I know that there's a living God and it's dependent upon him, I still got to get up. And just like in the conference that all, me and the guys went to, I got to show up. I still got to do what I'm supposed to do, and you do too. You got to go to work. You teachers got to teach. You nurses got to nurse. They uh, got to be nurses, right? You, you construction workers, you guys got to do all the things that you're supposed to do. You got to be there. You got to do what it is that God's called you to do. And then God shows up while we're going, as we are going. We got to live as Christians. We cannot be afraid to ask God for the miraculous. This was a miraculous thing that happened, getting to the, the mo one of the most precious moments in scripture here where he's going to celebrate the Passover of his disciples. Something happens, we see not only is the miraculous, do we see the method of the miraculous, we also see uh, that the miraculous recognizes the betrayer. Look what it says in verse 17. When it was evening, he came to the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved, and they said to him, one by one, surely it's not I. And he said to it, it is one of the twelve, one of, who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That is not said, that is not repeated in the, Old, in the New Testament. It would have been better for that guy not to be born. It's only said of Judas in the four Gospels. It would have been better for him not to have been born. But he was born and he betrays the Lord. The miraculous recognizes the betrayer. The word that he's using there for betraying is used throughout the New Testament. It means to, to hand over. It means to vote upon. It's a, it's a pledge to hand over, to commit, to commend, to betray, to abandon. Abandon, in my heart, feels a lot more accurate. It's used in all four Gospels. And this knowledge grieved them. The word, the word that's used for grieve there is lupeo. And it, it pained all of them to hear this. They're always the Savior... And we're going to be able to identify with this in just a moment. But listen, when they heard that, they were all reclining at the table. They were about to celebrate the Passover. They were celebrating the process, celebrating the Passover. And he says, one of y'all is going to betray me. And it hurt them to know this, to hear this. They betrayed the Savior. They did betray, they did betray the Savior. He said, one of them is going to betray me and hand me over to the Romans. But you know what? They all abandoned him, every single one of them. It's a very interesting study, and I've, this is the second or third time that I've mentioned this about Judas, but Judas is an interesting character study because the, the early church and later scholars don't really know what to do with him. 
They would like to find a way to try to rationalize and say that he was really a good guy at heart, but he was misguided, that he really, he just misunderstood the mission. No, he knew who Jesus was, and he betrayed him. He knew exactly who he was. He had conviction in his heart. This is the Son of God. I just need to follow him. That's all I need to do, but he didn't do it. They didn't do it. Judas betrayed him, and the others fled, and they abandoned him. And the difference between Judas's betrayal and the disciples' betrayals is theirs was a betrayal to repentance. They were hurt as well, but eventually they would be convicted, and then they would make confessions of the Savior, and they would be, as we are, we would be Christians. Judas was just not going to follow Christ. That's all you can say. There's not a political, there's not a scholastic reason for why Judas, Judas just made that decision, and he did it. I'm not going to take anything away from him, but I'm not going to give him anything either. He's not going to be in heaven. He's not, he's, he did not repent and then was saved. He made a conscious decision. Now, you know, some of y'all know where I'm going with this, don't you? You see, it's, it's one thing if you don't know who he is. That's one kind of lostness. But when you know who he is and you decide to betray him, but Brother Ronnie, I think I've spent too much of my life as a pastor trying to beg people who really don't want anything to do with Jesus. I've spent way, way too much time. When God has just down the road or around the corner or across the state or some other nation somewhere, people who are dying, and when the moment they find out he's who, he did what, he's here for me, he loves me now, that's where I need to be spending and focusing my time. Surely it's not I. Which one of them thought that they did it? They all ask it. Surely it's not I. Is it I? And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. I think Judas knew it was him. I don't have any stones to throw at Judas because since I've been a Christian, have I abandoned him? Since I've been a Christian, this is the second thing that we're addressing this morning in the text, but I don't have any stones to throw at Judas for on this account right here is that I'm still a man of the flesh and I still am a human being. And as a man and, and trying to do what's right, I am not always right. I don't do right. I don't treat people right. I don't think right. I don't say the right thing sometimes. And that's a betrayal, but it's covered in the blood because I placed my faith in Christ and he's got me covered, but it's still a betrayal. What Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to move from a memorialization of the Passover to a brand new economy, a brand new, and it's not a type of Passover, but it's a brand new covenant. Let's look at the Passover as very quickly as, as a historical element. But you know, the Passover, Brother Mike, what was the Passover? Let's assume there's, there, there's probably some that are here this morning and they don't, maybe you don't understand that the Passover was... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus what that was was a celebration of the jewish people of god's great deliverance god's people were in egypt at one time they were friend they were friendly with egypt they were friendly with the pharaohs but it says in that scripture it's a very famous passage it says but there arose a pharaoh that did not know joseph and through the course of time, they didn't know who he was. And so they enslaved the Jewish people because God blessed them and they increased in number. And so then they became, they became slaves to the Egyptians. And so then they cried out to their God. And they abandoned the Lord. They, they abandoned the Lord God Jehovah and they took on the gods of Pharaoh. And then they began to cry out because they were suffering. They were suffering as slaves. And so God called Moses. Moses was born and he he was drawn out of the water, which that's what his name means. I love that about Moses. It means to draw out. He was drawn out of the water. He became a prince of Egypt. God sent him to him, even though Moses didn't want to go. God brought a flood of plagues. But the great theme of the Exodus was the fact that God, God was able to deliver his people, number one. Number two, it shows that they were God's chosen people. And number three, that something innocent had to be offered up. Because what happened in that last great plague was the angel of death came down. And what happened? What did they do? They, took, they all took a lamb. They, and the unleavened bread, the sign of that, some of you may not know this, but it, you're to make your bread quickly. You make it so quickly that it doesn't have time to rise. That's why it's unleavened bread. It's, everything's in a hurry. It's in a rush. And you take a lamb and you kill it and you eat all of it. You eat every bit of it, but not the blood. And what did you do with the blood? You put it on the doorpost. And Cecil B. DeMille and all those 1960s and 70s Hollywood, they didn't do it justice, but it's still scary. You have that imagery of a great angel of death coming down, and this is the last great plague. There's a lot of history there, but you know, the reason the firstborn of everything died, it has multiple layers. In Egypt, they had a god of the firstborn. 
And the Egyptians said, if you have a cow and it's a brand new cow and brand new animal and it has a firstborn, it belongs to Pharaoh. It belongs to Ra. God said, you're not the God of the firstborn. I'm the God of the firstborn. And to prove it, in that last great plague, every, the firstborn of everything died. And the firstborn humans died if they didn't have that blood splattered above the door. All the Jewish people, we go back to Jesus' time, all the Jewish people knew this. They've been, they've been celebrating this. And it's, just, it's, it, it's a mystery to me now, but I mean, I guess you had to be there. I don't know how they didn't know this wasn't Jesus. This wasn't the Messiah. Everything that had been promised, everything that had been prophesied that Jesus would do, he did. Everything that they said he would preach, he gave sight to the blind, he stopped, he stopped the storms, he raised the dead. You name it, he did it. And now they're at the Passover. You would have thought that one of those good Jewish boys that were there at the table said, you know, there's something about your life that mimics what we're, we're doing here. But none of them did. Nobody recognized it. Okay, how do you make that a 21st century point? How, might, how, might bring that old story to right now in, what year is this, 2018? Bring that point here. Some of you are here, and you're going through certain things in your life or in your marriage, and when I preach or I talk or your Sunday school teacher teaches or your grandmother calls you or shares a verse of Scripture with you over the phone, and you go, how do they know that? How do they know the details of that? And, and God is trying to give you the answer to what it is that you're going through in your life. It's right there in front of you, and you're just like those guys sitting at the table. You're missing it. And what's incredibly frustrating, the only other word that comes out of my mouth right now I can think of, but the thing that's frustrating about me, some people do it morning after morning after morning, not just at our church, but in churches all over America. They hear the gospel preached, and they say, boy, I sure wish I knew what to do about that. I wish I knew what to do about my marriage. I wish I knew, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. And every week, somebody's preaching the truth to you. I wish I knew what to do with that, my son, my prodigal son or my prodigal daughter. I wish I knew what to do about my business that's failing. I wish I knew what to do about my health. I wish I knew, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. Guys, we don't have any other hope except the hope that's right here in this Bible. That's the only hope we have. So he's trying to move them from that narrative of the Passover to a better fellowship realized. Verse 22 says, while they were eating, he took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and gave thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink from it. And they said to him, then he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I'll never drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in your kingdom. And two things here. <clears throat> he takes some of the bread. Why didn't he take some of the lamb? Well, he's trying to press a point here. He was, the lamb was there. <laughs> he's the lamb. But the bread, he's trying again to play upon that theme that they should have all caught. In John chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus had told them, the disciples had heard this right here. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he who has seen the Father. Very truly I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Who eats, whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The bread was a symbol for his body, but it was also a symbol from the manna that came down from heaven. Back to your Old Testament again. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were wandering with Moses through the wilderness, God provided quail for them. He provided meat. He provided water. But one thing he provided, I would love to have been there and seen this, that he provided manna. Don't know, we, don't know what it's, we don't know what it is, but it was something that fell from heaven, manna from heaven. And it's a, it's, you used, probably used that word before, maybe didn't even know what it was. It just means something. It's a gift from heaven. And when Jesus, in his teaching in John chapter 6, was visiting with them, with his disciples, he was teaching them, he was trying to, again, go over this, I am the bread, I am the manna, I am the life that comes down if you eat of me. What else did he say about his John? The ego, my, the ego I may sayings in John, I am the bread of life, I am the water, I am the vine, I am the door, I am, I am, I am, I am. And we miss it every week. Brother Mike, do you ever miss it? Yeah, I miss it all the time. I still miss it. I mean, now I've met him. I've met Jesus. He is my Lord and my Savior. I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And, and I'm, but I'm trying to get in a, in a place with you where I realize I, don't ha I, do, I do not judge. Because I'm blind sometimes. I don't see like I should see sometimes. I forget that he is the way, the door, the truth, the life sometimes. 
by my actions and my attitude. He was giving them this offering, and what he was trying to get them to do was to accept the reality of his sacrifice. And in a little bit, when he, when he was resurrected and they followed his instructions and he, they, go, they go to Pentecost to see the falling of the Spirit, to take the Spirit, they see that they, he also wants them to accept the responsibility of that sacrifice. And a third thing that I think he's doing at the Lord's table there with them is he wants to place their trust in the efficacy. Now, I have to use that word. I have to use it. It's a $10 word, but what it means, it's enough. Jesus' sacrifice, what he's doing here at the dinner table, it's imagery for them, but he's trying to press home, it will be enough. It's, it's going to be enough. So that 2,000 years later, when you pray and you ask Christ to come into your heart and you become a Christian, it's enough. It's enough. You don't have to do anything else after that. You don't, baptism does not save you. Good works does not save you. Knocking on a thousand doors, like our, we, have, we, know, we know of different cults and stuff, and you know, uh, JWs where they go down, and it's works, it's works, it's works. Meeting with the priest here does not, I'm not the priest, I don't mean to say that, but you know, meeting with the pastor, that doesn't save you. Let me pick on somebody innocent here, but you know, you're no more, no less. If my wife, Brenda Calhoun, leads one of you to the Lord, you're no more, no less saved because either one of us done it. If you do that, if you lead one of your children, I have no more capabilities nor, or no less than you do if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, you as parents ought to be the ones leading your children to the Lord, leading them to Christ, raising them in such a way that you are able to have that conversation. Oh my goodness, I wish my parents would have done that. I wish they'd have led me to the Lord. He wants them to accept the reality through that image of the bread, the responsibility. It's your sin that's put me on that cross. And third, the efficacy. It's enough. Jesus is enough. And he's trying to give them inklings of a better covenant. He gives that to them, and he, it says in verse 23, and when he had taken the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them and said, drink from all of it. And they said to them, and he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now, it's at this point that a lot of scholars are saying, is Jesus practicing the old Jewish Passover, or is he starting something new? And it's about a 50-50 battle, because what is he doing really here? Is Jesus really, you know, they're the ones who called it the Passover. Where do you want us to go prepare the Passover? And he does say, you're going to go in town, you're going to find this guy, and he'll show us where we can practice the Passover. But something else is happening here. We are leaving. Jesus is not a new Passover. He is a completely new covenant. The old Passover, which there was nothing wrong. There was nothing wrong with the law. It was perfect law. The commandments, they're perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's the problems with us. We can't keep it. And so if you get involved now in the 20, as a 21st century Christian, if you get involved in a new form of legalism, Jesus won't be enough. Because you're trying to earn your own righteousness. You have to depend on the righteousness, the only righteousness, the new covenant, the cup that only he could drink. If we could get in a time machine and go back there and we could, we could do all of this for Jesus, it wouldn't be good enough because we're not God. We're not perfect. It's a brand new covenant. And that's what the church, that's what the world, that's what mankind needed was a brand new covenant. Now, we, I thought about us doing the Lord's Supper this morning, but I'm glad I didn't because I wanted to do some teaching here this morning on this subject, because we are going to be having the Lord's Supper in the future in the morning service, and here's why. First of all, one of the things that we want to do whenever we have the Lord's Supper, and it's going to be coming up in a few weeks, we want to make sure that you're a Christian. And so whenever the Lord's Supper is taken on a Sunday morning service, it's a powerful testimony. Jesus said, as often as you do this, you proclaim the gospel. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we're doing is we're preaching. You're preaching. We're proclaiming the death of the Lord, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. A second thing that happens whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning, I think, is that we have to encourage you about being prepared to take the Lord's Supper. Now, <clears throat> I think if I were to ask, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, but I think if I were to ask, when was the last time some of you had taken the Lord's Supper? It'd be quite a while. And one of the reasons would be was because usually I think Pruitt's given the Lord's Supper on Sunday evening. Well, we don't have a, a large crowd. Now, I could say, well, if somebody really loves the Lord, they'll come. Say, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> they should be there Sunday night. That's my responsibility as a pastor, a shepherd, to make sure I make available to you the Lord's Supper so that at, at a good time, and that happens to be on a Sunday morning. We want you to understand the weight of what it is when you take the Lord's Supper. Because all the way over, and you might rock, write this down in your Bible by that verse, those verses that we've been reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 32. And let me just put it in a little synoptic form for you here. 
But in Corinthians, they had a problem where they were taking the Lord's Supper, but they were taking it unworthily. Somehow, through the course of time, there used to be an early, what was called a love feast. And that love feast was when the church got together and they had a full meal. It was a, a full-grown meal. And so all the Christians would get together and they would partake of the Lord's Supper. I think they did it as often as whenever they came together. But Paul in Corinthians talks about how they got together and they were partaking of the Lord's Supper. And some of them were drunk. Some of them were hungry. And it, it ended up being dishonoring the Lord. They were, not they were taking of it worthily. And it gets down to this point. How important was it? He says... I don't want to miss this. You need to see this. Therefore, whoever eats and drinks of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so is to eat of this bread and drink of this cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. He does not judge the body rightly. And for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep. Now, that's Old Testament scripture jargon for you. They died. How serious is the Lord's Supper? Well, it's so serious. I don't think anything's changed since this time. But if you take of the Lord's Supper unworthily, you can, I think it'd make you sick. I mean, I think he will, he will afflict you. Something will afflict you physically. And if you continue to do that, I think it could actually cost your life. I mean, it's right there in Scripture. It says some of you are asleep, and he's not talking about taking a nap. He's talking about that they were getting together, and it was starting to turn into what more reflected the old Greek festivals he said, you're not Greeks anymore, and this is a holy place, and you're remembering the body of the Lord, so whenever you take of that, stop and think about your heart. So when, when we practice the Lord's Supper in the future on a Sunday morning, it's going to be time for all of us, from the pastor down back to the nursery and our, our nursery workers and everybody on the plant here, it's going to be important for us to look at your heart before you take of the Lord's Supper and make your heart right. God is love. Amen? Everybody say, God is love. But God is also honest. Everybody say, God is honest. And when he gets honest and real with you over the shed blood of his son, Jesus, this is big medicine. This is, this is big stuff to him. We have to take worthily. And we as a church, a lot of churches I think have gotten slack in how we approach the Lord's table and, allow, and allowing ourselves to have, have sin. Now, Brother Mike, make that practical for me, okay? You've had a fight, a serious fight with one of the other secretaries where you work. This is hypothetical. And you two have had an ongoing division for a while you're mad at each other and so then we are going to practice the lord's supper here in a couple of weeks on a sunday morning service and you don't take care of that you're i'm telling you that's serious when you come to the lord's table and you have sin between you and somebody else and you haven't tried to make it right now that doesn't mean you make it right because we can't make the world right but your attempt you are to attempt to make that right and get your heart right and some of you it's with your spouse maybe it's with your husband or your wife or one of your kids you better have done all that you know to do to make that right before you participate at the Lord's table. And we're going to start participating together as a church. And part of the things that I'm hoping that happens there is a, a, a true and sincere sense of conviction about sin that's in our life. Brother Mike, what's holding us back as a church? Is there anything holding us back? The only thing that's ever going to hold us back is sin. And let me tell you something. When we gather at the Lord's table and remember his sacrifice and his offering and we, let, we do business with God and allow him to deal with our sin, that means less and less and less is holding us back as a church. Somebody please say amen. amen. Are you all with me? Amen? Okay, okay. He says in verse 25, truly, I'll never, I, truly I say to you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in a kingdom. He's giving them inklings of something that is better to come. It's been said in the scripture, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that, for I'm a fellow servant with you, with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears his testimony. There is a great banquet that is coming up for all of us. We're all... Uh, Jesus, when he had his disciples, he, he said, I'm not... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm going to eat of this again. It was a great prophecy of hope for us. We've already seen the prophecy of him preparing a place for them to practice the Lord's Supper, the, the new covenant. Well, he's made another prophecy. He said, I'm not going to drink of the vine again until we all do it together in the kingdom. We have a Savior. We have a Savior who, who was God and became one of us and walked on earth as a perfect man. Uh, Hebrews 4 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we have, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. As I was trying to wrap this message up and think, okay, well, Lord, I, 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 there's so much here. What, what, what do I say? Well, what, what do I say? What's that closing thought? It's this. There's room at the cross for you. There's help for you. Whatever it is you're going through in your life, there is someone who can help you. His name is Jesus. And, and your relationship with him, if you don't have one at all, you need to be saved this morning. I'll tell you what, let's do this right here. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I wanna, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I want you to pray this prayer with me. If you know in your heart, if you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, and you know in your heart you're not a Christian, you don't have to say this prayer out loud. You, say, you can say it to yourself. And you can ask Jesus to come into your heart. You know the truth of what I'm talking about. You would repeat after me. Don't say it out loud. Just say it in your heart. Say, dear Lord, I have heard about you my whole life. And I just found out that I need you right now, this morning. Dear Lord, come into my heart and save me. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for me on the cross. And I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, everybody look up here at me. Now, if you're here this morning and you prayed that prayer, your name just got written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't know what's going to happen between now and 10,000 years, but I can promise you that 10,000 years from today, you and I will be in heaven together if you prayed that prayer. Now, I love Billy Graham's invitation, but you know what Billy Graham used to say was this. He said, everybody that Jesus called in the Bible, he called publicly. So if not this morning, at some point, you find somebody and you tell them, it might be your husband, it might be your wife, it might be your mom or dad, but you tell them, say, honey, I pray, or dad, I prayed that prayer. The, pre the prayer that they, we prayed this morning, I prayed that prayer. You tell somebody and let them know that you prayed that prayer. We're going to stand in just a moment. If you prayed that prayer and you want to, I'm not putting pressure on you. You need to do it. It's, not, it's Jesus. It's not me. You come down and we'll make, we'll make your salvation a public profession. You come this morning. We can take care of business right here. Let's all stand as we sing a hymn of invitation. You are listening to the Sunday morning worship services of the Pruitt Baptist Church in Van, Texas with Pastor David McNary. Acts 26, please. Today I want us to look at a passage which contains the saddest verse in the Bible. The scripture says, Then King Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. So what is a Christian? Some years ago the Supreme Court of Iowa was called on to rule in an unusual case. A Methodist physician had left a trust fund in the charge of four trustees. His instructions were that the funds be distributed among persons who believe in the fundamental principles of the Christian religion and the Bible and who are endeavoring to promulgate or to promote or make known the same. A dispute arose. The relatives, who were nieces and nephews, argued there is no common agreement as to what constitutes the fundamental principles of Christianity, even though the trustees produced clergymen who testified as to Christian principles. The judge of a lower court ruled in behalf of the relatives and instructed the trustees to turn over funds to the relatives. But when the case came before the state Supreme Court, it voted seven to two to uphold the physician's will stating, now listen, that it is possible to define what kind of person can be called a Christian. 
and that the trustees were capable of determining from the language of the will who should benefit from the trust fund. The question with which they were faced is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Now, just as the lower court suggested, there is widespread speculation on the matter. So, in a situation like that, I, I mean, what do you do? Do you just go from person to person and ask them what a Christian is? Well, if you go to ten different people, you'll get ten different answers. So, you know how that works. Not only that, but the nieces and nephews probably wanted to go to all of their buddies and friends, you know, out there that never heard of, a, heard of being a Christian anyway. So what do you do in a case like that? Well, you go to the source of Christianity. You go to the Word of God. You look to see what God has to say in His Word about being a Christian. Now, just for your, just for your information... There's only three places in the Bible, in the New Testament, where the word Christian is used. Only three places. Two of them are in Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, and Acts chapter 26, verse 28, and 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 16. Today, we want to deal with the passage in Acts 26. I apologize, it's a long passage of Scripture, but I believe we need to read it all to get the story. Beginning in verse 13. At midday, O king, this is Paul's testimony. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them that journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew, Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith, that is, in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other thing than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, and Christ should suffer, than that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner in hiding. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? He did, that's where he put him on the spot. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except, except these bonds. So what is a Christian? Can we learn from this passage of Scripture what a Christian is? I believe we can. First of all, what is a Christian? A Christian is a person. A Christian is a person. We live in an age of generalities. Uh, we live in an age of conglomeration. Uh, we, don't, we, don't like to, we don't like to do anything personally. I get really tickled because sometimes somebody will send a group text. Anybody ever get a group text? 
And then how many texts do you get after that when everybody in the group responds back to the person and it goes to the whole group? Listen, you have to be careful what you say in your group text, okay? <laughs> you never know who's going to pick it up. That's the way we do things now. We have to text. You know, we don't, we don't do anything in person. Well, I want to tell you something. In order to be a Christian, you have to be personal with Jesus Christ. It's a personal thing because it requires a person. Folks, Christianity is not some sort of generic, generalized, popularized organization. That's the way we look at it, you know. Well, what is Christianity? Well, that's Christianity over there. You know, somebody say, well, that's Christianity over at Pruitt Baptist Church. Well, it is, but you know what's more personal than that? It's not just about all of us being Christian. It's about, it's about the fact that each one of us have an, have an individual and separate relationship with Jesus Christ. A Christian, a Christian is a person. Paul's invitation and King Agrippa's statement were both very personal. Paul didn't invite him to join an organization. Paul didn't invite him to join the church. Okay? He didn't invite him to join the church. That's the easy way out, by the way. He didn't invite him to join the church. But rather, he invited him to become something which he was not previously. And that's the same way Jesus dealt with Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Jesus said to him, you must be born again. He didn't say it's going to be like being born again. He didn't say that at all. He said, you must be born again. It's a relationship. It's an experience. He invited Nicodemus to a new birth experience. He didn't invite him to join any organization. Lord knows Nicodemus didn't need any more organizations. He was organized to the hilt. He, everything that was out there. He was a part of it, every club and every organization and every religious uh, prospect that was out there. He was, he was there. He invited him, rather, to become a child of God. To become a child of God. So, what is a Christian? A Christian is a person. What is a Christian? A Christian is a believing person. A believing person. Notice what Paul said in giving his testimony to King Agrippa. He said, when he heard the voice of Jesus, he asked, Who art thou, Lord? Now, I believe, there, I believe even, even though, even though uh, Paul was in a situation where he was going out to try to find, to try to find those people that he, he believed were Christians and take them back and arrest them and take them back to persecute them, I still think that somehow or another he knew that when this light shone around him, he was being confronted by the one that he was persecuting. I believe that with all of my heart. And I know that later on, you know, Jesus said, he said, who art thou, who art thou Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And he said, I want you to do what I tell you to do, stand up. First thing, he said, stand up. And then he said, I've got work for you to do. And he's a believer because he represented that work in the things that he did. He believed, he entered into a relationship, he listened to Christ, and he set out to do the work of the Lord. Now I want, to, I want you to notice something I think very interesting here, and that is that uh, he didn't wait. Now where was he going? He was going to Damascus, okay? Where did he wind up? He wound up in Damascus. And once the scales were lifted from his eyes so that he could see, he said, here's what he said, but I showed it first unto them of Damascus. Now, he, can't, he couldn't have been a Christian, but just a few days, okay? He couldn't have been a follower of Christ, but just a few days. It was dangerous to be a follower of Christ. He was in Damascus. And he said, I showed first unto them of Damascus. And then I went to Jerusalem. And then I went throughout the coast of Judea. And then I went to the Gentiles, which... By the way, that covers the entire known world uh, at that time. That, that's everybody. There's only, two, there's only two kinds of people. There's Jews and Gentiles, okay? <laughs> that's, that's the Jewish understanding. If you're not a Jew, then you're, then you're a Gentile. He said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord spoke to him and told him who he was. The Ethiopian man who was, who was confronted by 
by uh, uh, Philip, said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What? I believe. I believe. He, a Christian is a believing person. The Philippian jailer, Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what Jesus said to Paul in verse 18 and 19. He said, I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Faith, belief. Then Paul said, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. What he said was, I believe, Lord. I believe. Folks, these scriptures teach us that when a person truly believes in Christ, he commits his life to Christ, to the one in whom he believes. James said, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, then he thinks he's something he's not. All right, now get that. That's pretty clear. If somebody says that they are a believer in Christ and they don't do what Christ tells them to do, they don't live the life that Christ has instructed them to live and in fact is willing to empower them to live, then they're thinking that they're something when they're not really. In other words, there's going to be a change. There's going to be a, there's going to be a transformation that takes place uh, in a person's life. True Christian faith will be evidenced in the life of the one who calls himself a Christian. In the life of that person who says that he's a Christian, there will be evidence of Christian faith. Just like the story in the beginning. But let me share this little illustration with you. Let's see how much time we got. Mrs. Florence Gravitt. She was a member of a Baptist church in Washington, D.C., and she had an urge to start a Sunday school class in her church. So, she went to a local pool hall. And she interrupted a game. She said, young men, I'm going to start a Sunday school class at the Baptist church next Sunday. Boldness. I want you to come and be in my class. Then she gave them some literature and left. After standing there for a moment in utter amazement, one of the boys said, why don't we go to her Sunday school class next week? We'll give her such a hard time, she'll never invite us back. So they all agreed. They all agreed. The next Sunday, there were 17 hoodlums in that Sunday school class. Mrs. Gravitz opened the Word of God and spoke to them with love and compassion. And they were unable to speak a word of disruption. Over a period of time, all the boys were saved. Four became preachers. Three became ministers of education. One became a bank president. But they all became reputable citizens. That's what true faith does. It steps out. True faith is a courageous faith. How many of you would have walked into that pool hall that day? Ladies. Let's just do ladies, okay? Some of you guys would have, but you'd probably wound up trying to play pool or something. True faith leads to a changed life. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person. A Christian is a believing person. And finally, a Christian is a changed, is a changed person. When speaking to the king, <clears throat> verse 20, Paul talked of repentance. Repentance. And you know what repentance means. If you repent, that means you turn around. You turn away away from you go away from the direction you were going and go another direction so it means turning around and going in a new direction and in his testimony paul said that he was on his way to damascus to arrest christians for persecution but after his encounter with christ now listen i want you, you have to see this picture after his encounter with christ he set out to lead others to become christian do you think the threat of being persecuted? Do you think the threat of being arrested uh, went away whenever Paul accepted Christ? <laughs> no. No. 
just had a new leader, I'm sure. They just had a new leader. He wasn't, his name wasn't Paul, but it didn't go away. And what he had been doing is chasing them down, arresting them, taking them back in Jeru to Jerusalem and imprisoning them, putting them, in, putting them in jail for being a Christian. And after he had an encounter with Christ, now listen, this was a life-changing encounter with Christ because he said, wow, what have I missed? I've been doing this. I've been opposing Christ. And now I am one. That's a sign of real repentance. After Zacchaeus had an encounter with Christ, he was a changed man. Before, he was a tax collector and a thief, admittedly. He was a tax collector and a thief. But when he met Jesus, he said, Lord, the half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Now listen. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Folks, Jesus did not acknowledge that Zacchaeus was saved because he said he believed. He didn't acknowledge that Zacchaeus was saved because he said he believed. He understood that he was saved because he was changed. You see, it was faith that changed him, but it was the change which made that faith real. It was the change that helped everyone to understand that he was a different person. It verified his faith. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Folks, you can't become a Christian without there being a difference. There's a change that takes place. There's a change. There is a newness. There is a new person that is created. So what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is a person. Christianity does not exist outside of people. No people, no Christianity. True? A Christian is a believing person. True Christian faith is seen in those who believe unto service. I mean, why would you say that you were going to believe in someone if you were not going to serve them, if you were not going to follow them if you were not going to listen to them and a christian is a changed person the true christian is not the same as he used to be nor the same as everyone else nor the same as the world wants him to be oh i better read that again nor the same as the world wants him to be he has repented and has been eternally changed now, when these things are true, then we know what is a Christian. <laughs> what is a Christian? You know, way back in the beginning at that, at that decision by the Supreme Court, those trustees were given a responsibility to determine who it was that was to receive the funds from the trust fund. They had to determine that based on Christianity. Who is, a, who is a Christian? And they had to know what a Christian really is. And they had to look into a person's life to make a decision and to make a determination. Now, how did they do that? Every one of those nieces and nephews would have said, I'm a believer. Did they depend on that statement? Not that only. Not that only. They depended on the fact that they could see there was an evidence of a newness and of a difference in the person's life. Listen, if you accept Christ, if, if you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will be different. In a good way. My prayer today is that Everyone here is a Christian before you leave here today. Please do not do what King Agrippa did 
and go away saying, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Let me tell you, almost will get you nowhere good. Almost will get you nowhere good. Father, thank you for today. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to read your word. I thank you, Father, that you, you give us these instances, these testimonies that we might read in the Scripture. Dear Father, I pray today that you might speak to us through the testimony, through the testimony of Paul and, and the testimony of King Agrippa. Father, I pray that you'll help us today to understand, to have a comprehension of what it is to be a Christian. Dear Father, I pray that not a person would leave here today without first coming to trust in Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Dear Father, speak to hearts today. Call us to yourself. Your plan, reveal to us your, your will for our lives, and we know that it is your will that be saved. Now, Father, be with those who, who are Christians but know that they haven't been living for Christ. I pray, Father, you'll give them the courage to come today and to offer up those sins as, as sacrifices to get rid of them, Father. I pray that they'll come confessing those sins, being made right with God. Dear Father, I pray you'll continue to be with each and every one of us throughout this day and throughout this week. Help us, Father, in what we do to bring praise and glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. Help there to be, help there to be enough evidence that, we, that it might be determined that I'm a believer in Christ. And I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning worship services of the Pruitt Baptist Church in Van, Texas. A podcast of the service is available on demand at the KCAA website at www.kcaaradio.com. The Pruitt Baptist Church is located at 9908 State Highway 110 in Van, Texas. The Sunday worship schedule includes Bible study at 9.45 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m., and evening worship at 6 p.m. For more information about the Pruitt Baptist Church, visit their website at www.pruittbaptistchurch.com or call 903-963-7473. Only winners listen to KCAA Loma Linda, the trifecta of Southern California radio. Heard on 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM. This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. Nearly one in five Americans live with some form of disability. How has the Americans with Disabilities Act affected their lives? We'll talk to an expert. While it's been a tremendous way to empower people with disabilities to ensure they have access and legal abilities to protect their rights, in some cases, our culture hasn't changed when it comes to the way that people view people with disabilities. Then, less than a third of science and engineering workers are female. We'll hear from a student who's trying to close the gap. It's not necessarily girls not seeing that there's so much opportunity in STEM. It's more of us not having those role models, as many role models as perhaps our male counterparts do. Those two stories and more are coming your way on this week's show. Stay with us. InfoTrack begins right after this. Blue Star medicated ointment works fast to relieve the pain and itch of almost any skin irritation. It's like as soon as you put it on, you can feel it working. We've had Blue Star in the family for years. It works on everything. I love the cooling sensation on my athlete's foot. What a relief for my eczema. Nothing worked on my dry, cracked skin until I tried Blue Star. Blue Star is great for scalpage. Look for the white box with the Blue Star in the first aid section. Feel Blue Star work fast or your money back. Boss, there's a photographer out here who wants to do a piece on Jimmy John's for her magazine. What kind of piece? Uh, well, she heard about a clothing optional delivery policy and, uh... Oh, did you tell her the naked driver incident was a momentary misunderstanding? Yes, sir, but... Did you tell her it's our meats that are going all natural, not our drivers? Yes, sir, that's not... Did you tell her Jimmy John's is committed to serving sandwiches with only the finest all-natural ham, roast beef, salami, bacon, and real fresh turkey breast? Yes, sir, I did, sir. So she wants to photograph our sandwiches? No, sir. Actually, she wants to do a calendar. A what? A calendar. You know, the men of Jimmy John's. 
Dibs on January. You know, as an allergy sufferer, you're wired differently. I sure feel that way. That's why there's Nasacort. It's different too. You see, unlike antihistamines, Nasacort targets and inhibits more of the allergic inflammation that causes your congestion and other nasal allergy symptoms. My antihistamine doesn't do that? None of them do. Oh, that is different. And it's why Nasacort's more effective at giving you 24-hour relief. So even if I'm wired differently... Nasacort stops more of what makes you miserable. Use as directed. Clothes don't make somebody a cowboy. It's a lifestyle, an attitude. You're entitled to nothing. You earn everything you got. It's rooted in your soul. And the pain? Well, yeah, that's guaranteed. God knows this life isn't easy, but it's worth it. Boot Barn. It's good to be home. InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. There are millions of Americans who suffer from some form of disability, but there are people working to make their lives better. Joining us is Philip Pauly, the Policy and Practice Director of the Disability Advocacy Nonprofit, Respectability. Philip, how many Americans have some form of disability? The number might surprise you. Very simply, it's one in five Americans to the total of more than 56 million Americans live with some form of disability. That means that you know one in five people have some form of impairment that impacts their activities of daily living. It could be anything from a chronic health condition such as lupus or arthritis, or it could be a traumatic injury such as a spinal cord injury, meaning that somebody is a wheelchair user, or it can be somebody that is born with a disability such as somebody with Down syndrome or other developmental disabilities. The Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 clearly had a major impact in many ways. In retrospect, how would you say it's viewed by the disabled and did it go far enough? Well, the thing is about a law such as the Americans with Disabilities Act is that it was the Civil Rights Act for the one in five Americans who has a disability. It opened businesses, it opened homes, it opened hotels, hospitals, other places by requiring physical accessibility. And that has meant tremendous opportunities for more people to get out into their communities, to get out into the workforce. However, a law like that can only go so far. It can open legal pathways to protect your civil rights. That doesn't necessarily mean that 